This week, PetSmart Advisor Shuffle continues, Pacific Drilling releases competing restructuring proposals, and two highly anticipated opinions from the Supreme Court. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distress, debt, and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lang, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Stephen Opper. This week, our director of research, Mark Fisher, sat down with legal analyst Teresa Lee and financial analyst Yashwant Chunderu to provide an update on the increasingly contentious Claire's bankruptcy. The discussion covers the existing plan as well as options for any competing plans. It's Sunday, June 24th. PetSmart remained active this week as Reorg learned that Citibank resigned on Wednesday as administrative agent to PetSmart's $4.2 billion term loan. The resignation followed PetSmart's announcement on June 4th that it had transferred 20% of online entity Chewy's equity to parent company Argus Holdings and another 16.5% to an unrestricted subsidiary. Prior to the resignation, Reorg learned that a group of lenders that had already organized with Arnold & Porter, K. Scholler, and FTI wrote to Citi, asking for more information to help determine if the transactions were permitted under debt covenants and whether any events of default occurred. According to Reorg Covenants, the loan agent can be replaced with the consent of a simple majority of lenders and the borrower within 30 days, according to the loan documents. Reorg also learned that a crossholder group has organized with Paul Weiss and PGT Advising, while a group of unsecured note holders has hired Evercore and Millbank. Pacific Drilling released competing restructuring plans this week, along with an updated business plan through 2025. One restructuring proposal came from the offshore rig contractor's majority shareholder, Quantum Pacific, along with certain senior secured credit facility lenders. The other from the ad hoc group of secured lenders. Both proposals were dated June 7th. According to the filing, there, quote, is no consensus currently among the company and its stakeholders as to the terms of any plan of reorganization, end quote. And the company says that it continues to engage in active discussions in the mediation process. Both plans include both new money debt and equity components. The quantum plan includes a billion of new equity split between a $450 million private placement provided by Quantum and the SSCF lenders and $550 million to the 2017 and 2020 notes and term loan. The ad hoc group proposal contemplates $500 million of new equity funded by bond and term lenders with an option for Quantum to purchase a partial claim of the ad hoc group at $0.60. Cents. The filing also includes the company's business plan dated as of May 1st. According to the release, Pacific Drilling predicated its business plan on, quote, expected recovery in the ultra-deepwater drilling industry, end quote. In particular, the business plan projects a market recovery beginning in 2019 with, quote, significantly increased revenue and adjusted EBITDA, end quote, through the period 2021 through 2025. The plan calls for adjusted EBITDA increasing from just $9 million in 2018 to just under $530 million by 2025. That EBITDA would translate to $465 million in unlevered free cash flow, according to the plan. The U.S. Supreme Court released two highly anticipated opinions on Thursday in Lucia v. SEC and South Dakota v. Wayfair. In the Lucia decision, the Supreme Court concluded that the administrative law judges, or ALJs, of the Securities and Exchange Commission are, quote, officers of the United States, who are subject to the Appointments Clause of the U.S. Constitution. 
This decision from the nation's highest court is the latest development in a number of high-profile disputes involving parties who challenged the SEC's actions against them, arguing that the ALJs were not properly appointed under the Constitution. The Appointments Clause is also the focus of recent disputes that have arisen in the Puerto Rico Title III cases. Aurelius and the PREPA union, known as UTIR, have challenged the composition of the PROMESA Oversight Board, saying that because the board is unconstitutional, its acts, including the filing of the Title III cases, are void. How the Supreme Court's decision will affect the Puerto Rico challenges remains to be seen, as Puerto Rico's status as a U.S. territory is one of the central issues in the Title III dispute. Turning back to the Supreme Court's decision, the court's ruling effectively strikes down the SEC's previous appointment process for its ALJs as unconstitutional, because the ALJs should have been, but were not, hired in compliance with the requirements set forth in the Appointments Clause. The decision was a victory for the petitioners who brought the appeal to the Supreme Court, Raymond J. Lucia and Raymond J. Lucia Companies, Inc., whom the SEC previously found had violated the United States securities laws. The Supreme Court said that to cure the constitutional violation, a different ALJ, or the SEC itself, must hold a new hearing for the Lucia petitioners. In South Dakota versus Wayfair, the Supreme Court upheld South Dakota's law requiring certain retailers to remit sales tax, even if they do not have a physical presence in the state. The closely watched decision is a victory for states, including South Dakota, whose legal challenge presented a test case in a retail environment shaped by online shopping. Thursday's decision struck down a 1992 decision from the Supreme Court requiring retailers to be physically present in the state before being subject to certain state and local sales and use taxes. Online retailers Wayfair, Overstock, and Newegg served as respondents in the appeal and asked the court to strike down South Dakota's tax law which requires out-of-state sellers to collect and remit sales tax as if their seller had a physical presence in the state. The Supreme Court's opinion appears to open the door for similar laws across the country. The opinion notes that 41 states, two territories, and the District of Columbia urged the Supreme Court to reject the physical presence requirement. On the island of Puerto Rico, the latest monthly bank account report released by the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Fiscal Advisory Authority, or AFAF, showed that the cash balance across the Puerto Rico Commonwealth bank accounts increased by approximately $263 million from April 30th to May 31st bringing total deposits up to a little under $9 billion. The report says the increase was mainly driven by a $267 million increase in the central government's Treasury single account balance, among other increases related to pensions and public corporations. These increases were partially offset by a negative $62 million variance in non-TSA central government accounts and a $17 million decrease in either restricted accounts or those related to the Title III proceedings, said the report. In addition, the executive director of the Puerto Rico Aqueduct and Sewer Authority, or PRASA, said that the authority will make its upcoming debt service payment on senior lien bonds. PRASA faces a roughly $136 million payment on its 2008 and 2012 senior lien bonds on July 1st. On Monday, PRASA executive director Gerardo Portella told Reorg Research that the July debt payment is fully funded. The next day, Tuesday, the Permisa Oversight Board released its financial model for the certified fiscal plan dated May 30th. 
The oversight board said that the model is preliminary and subject to substantial modification and revision. On Thursday night, Puerto Rico's House of Representatives voted to approve amended versions of the fiscal 2019 budget resolutions, including changes to the general fund totals and a multitude of line items. The lower chamber also struck from the original resolutions submitted by the PROMESA Oversight Board all language that established a range of reporting, reserve, and other controls. Another central issue in the Puerto Rico legislature this week was related to the efforts to repeal Law 80, the Commonwealth's Wrongful Dismissal Act, which is a key element in the agreement reached between the Oversight Board and Governor Ricardo Rosseo that has direct ties to, among other things, the Commonwealth's Certified Fiscal Plan and Fiscal 2019 Budget. Other top red stories of the week were, iHeart announces an amended disclosure statement that Liberty formally withdrew its proposal. Number two, in a blow to opioid manufacturers, New York judge refuses to dismiss any actions. Number three, Energy 21 Gulf Coast to be acquired by affiliate of Cox Oil for $322 million. And now we'll pass it over to Jim Holloway for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Well, thanks, Karen, and good morning to our listeners. A lot going on this week before we celebrate the birthday of this fair land of freedom. Please remember to look for our Week Ahead product, which is released every Monday morning at 6.15 a.m. New York time. Okay, on Monday, June 25th, we have a final dip hearing for Nine West and an omnibus hearing for Toys R Us. Tuesday, June 26th, we have some in-court action for EcoBat, First Energy, and earnings from Deneos Corp., the Greek shipping firm, which is 20% owned by Mr. Economou of Ocean Rig fame. Now in Greek legend, Deneos was the founder of the city of Argos, and he was blessed by the gods with 50 daughters, about whose wedding many grim stories have been handed down from classical times, so y'all should look that up. Anyways, Deneos, the company's earnings call is on Wednesday, June 27th, as a first quarter earnings and a call from Rite Aid. We also have a settlement hearing in Lehman related to the settlement with Credit Suisse. Thursday, June 28th, three omnibuses, First Energy, Nine West, and Rex Energy. Also, the early tender deadline for Windstream's exchange offers. Nothing of consequence on Friday, but Saturday, June 30th, a coupon payment is due for Westmoreland's term loan. And on Sunday, Cobalt is due a payment from Sonnengall, and another coupon is due for Westmoreland, this time for its secured notes. That's all from me. Back to y'all. Thanks, Jim. I'm going to hand it off to Mark now, who's with Teresa and Yash, to discuss the Claire's bankruptcy. Thank you. So today we're going to discuss Claire's stores, the teen-focused retailer. Uh, Claire's, with over $2 billion in debt, filed for bankruptcy on March 19th of this year with an RSA uh, contemplating a September exit. The agreement uh, was reached with the company's first lien lenders and sponsor, Apollo. Uh, however, uh, you had some objections. Second lien uh, creditor, Oaktree, actually immediately objected. Uh, first uh, day after the company filed, they objected to the cash management motion, uh, but then they uh, objected to parts of the RSA itself, uh, most recently to the marketing process. Um, one of Oaktree's uh, significant uh, objections was uh, just uh, done, just um, discussed at a hearing uh, recently where Judge Mary Walrath uh, said that she was disturbed by certain aspects of it. The UCC uh, objected to the debtor's disclosure statement, calling the debtor's $1.4 billion valuation artificially low, and also said that confirmation has zero chance of success. Uh, so here to today to discuss, I'm here with uh, legal analyst Teresa Lee and uh, financial analyst Yashwan Chunduro. 
Um, and today we're uh, going to discuss uh, the things that we're going to go over, uh, the plan itself, specific points of contention, and ways in which Oak Tree or other parties can fight, and then more broadly, uh, options under the bankruptcy code allowing for creditors in general to propose uh, competing plans. Uh, so, so let's first, let's jump right into it. Uh, Yash, um, first, uh, if you could give us a sort of lay of the land, um, tell us who's involved, um, all the different parties uh, within the capital structure. Sure, Mark. I'm happy to. So let's start with the owner. As you mentioned, uh, it's Apollo. They bought the company in 2007 for about $3 billion, and they own roughly 98% of the equity as of the filing date. And they also own about $10 million of the first lien term loan and about $40 million of debt that sits at non-debtor entities. So next, let's talk about the largest creditors, which... Uh, is the first lien ad hoc group who, uh, Mark, as you mentioned, they executed an RSA with the company. And uh, so the five members in the group own about 77% of the total first lien debt as of June 13th, which amounts to over a billion dollars of the first lien debt. Elliot is the largest member of the group, holding about 40% of the outstanding first lien debt, uh, followed by Monarch, who owns roughly 19%, and JP Morgan, who holds about 10%. The last two members of the group are Venner Capital and Diameter, who own about 8% together. And uh, the group uh, as a whole also owns roughly 8% of the second lien notes and 83% of the unsecured notes, which represents about $180 million of the unsecured notes. And then Oak Tree, who of course has been one of the staunchest opponents of the debtors in these cases thus far, owns about 72% of the second lien notes. And there's also a seven-member UCC that's been appointed in these cases with a couple of trade creditors, some landlords, and a BOKF as the unsecured notes indenture trustee. Now, uh, specifically in terms of the RSA parties, we have about 97% uh, of the first lien claims on board, according to the debtors at uh, the hearing on Oak Tree's uh, modification motion on June 13th. And of this, the First Lien Ad Hoc Group and Apollo, who represent the backstop parties, account for about 77.6% of the First Lien claims, with another roughly 19% coming from First Lien claims held by non-backstop parties. So given that the First Lien Ad Hoc Group also owns 8% of the Second Lien notes and 83% of the unsecureds, their shares of the junior debt are also um, parties to the RSA. And this presents an interesting dynamic because you have a junior class that appears to have you know, majority support for the RSA, but ultimately those holders are the same guys who are getting paid out in the first thing uh, claims, which uh, we'll get into a bit more later. Uh, that, that that's really interesting, uh, you know, too. Uh, how you know how much of a stake these parties have throughout the entire capital structure? Because you know, not, not only that, they're going to have a very significant influence over the the, the case itself, um, and they'll also have a pretty big stake in the reorganized uh, company under the plan. Um, and, and and the way they get that is through this new money uh, component. Um, so if you could if you could walk us through. Uh, this new money, um, you know, how much, who's providing, uh, and then what are the uses of this cash investment? Sure. So uh, the current structure is set up so uh, the current RSA structure is set up so that the first lien creditors pretty much get everything, and they're slated to receive 100% of 
that reorganized common equity, as well as the opportunity to participate in this new money rights offering uh, in the amount of up to $575 million. And this contemplated exit financing has been attacked quite a bit by Oaktree. Um, the proposed financing would include $75 million of commitments for a revolver, a $250 million term loan, and an investment amount in between $200 million and $250 million for preferred equity at a discount uh, with the exact amount depending on uh, cash balance at emergence. And David Kurtz of Lazard, who's advising the debtors, indicated at that June 13th hearing that the debtors were expecting roughly $450 million of exit financing, which assumes that the revolver is undrawn and also implies that uh, the preferred equity is going to be around $200 million. And so half of this new money investment is going to be reserved for the backstop parties, uh, which I mentioned were Apollo and the Ad Hoc First Lien Group, while the other half will be opened up to the entire class of First Lien creditors, including the backstop parties, via rights offering. So that's, that's really the source of the new money. And the most significant uh, use of cash is expected to be to retire the non-debtor debt that's sitting at the European Gibraltar entities and the CLS IP entities, which uh, in aggregate total roughly $250 million. And also some cash will be used to pay down the dip facilities for which a $60 million term loan is currently outstanding. There's also a dip revolver, but it, it was undrawn as of May 5th, and uh, the debtors actually generated cash last quarter, so un unclear where that's going to end up. And there's also roughly $12.5 million in cash fees that are expected to be paid out with respect to the new money. And I think the bulk of the rest is just uh, going to be kept on the balance sheet as uh, cash for general corporate purposes. And the Gibraltar entities are actually quite interesting because the debtor's advisor at that hearing uh, pointed to these entities as a large reason why they didn't want to extend the timeline of these cases because essentially they said the European business was struggling and um, with about $90 million of maturities coming up in 2019 and lower than expected performance and liquidity, they tried to justify a relatively fast timeline. Great, and um, Teresa, this this that brings us to you know the, the next part here. Yasha, you know, talked about the Gibraltar loans, uh, also the CLSIP um, loans, and you know it's important here, and one, and one of the reasons why I wanted to discuss it is it's a key component paying them off of the plan, but it's also it gives us um, a little bit of insight into what a competing plan perhaps would need um, in, in in order to. Um, in order to get approval, uh, you know, here. So, um, w when you look at these loans, what's interesting is that Gibraltar, uh, you know, even though there's some liquidity issues, it still does generate cash. Uh, the CLSIP, you know, entity does generate um, some cash either, uh, some cash also. Gibraltar, um, you know, actually isn't even a debtor. Um, so. Teresa, why the need to pay off these loans? Um, you know, and 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 what do we think? You know, about Oak Tree and any potential competing plan here? Um, you know, and the need to uh, to, to again pay off uh, part of these the, pay off these loans as as a part of that plan. Okay, Mark. So let's uh, take a look at the background of Gibraltar and CLSIP first, because 
uh, where they came from and the the sort of debt holdings that they have are, are important to this discussion. So the majority of Claire's international operations are run by subsidiaries of non-debtor Gibraltar, which is a holding company uh, for Claire's European division. So there's about $51.5 million outstanding on the Gibraltar secured term loan, $40 million on the 2019 unsecured term loan, and $48.5 million on the 2021 unsecured term loan. Now, as you mentioned, none of the Gibraltar subs are debtors in the U.S. Chapter 11 cases, and none of the debtors, none of the U.S. debtors, are obligated on the Gibraltar secured term loan. But if an event of default exists under any of the debtors' obligations or under the CLSIP term loan, which we're going to get to in a little bit, the term loan agreement restricts cash transfers from the Gibraltar European and international entities to the domestic entities, which includes the debtors. Now, separately, the Gibraltar 2019 term unsecured term loan agreement contains a cash sweep provision that requires that any aggregate cash on hand at the U.S. domestic debtor entities in excess of $30 million for 30 consecutive days has to be transferred to Gibraltar. And finally, the Gibraltar loans are structurally senior to the Claire's Group's other funded debt, with respect to the company's non-North American international operations. Now, we're going to come back to that, but uh, let's take a look at the CLSIP entities. So the CLSIP and CLSIP holdings entities are also non-debtors, and they were formed in connection with Claire's 2016 debt for debt exchange um, and the CLSIP term loan. So through this 2016 exchange, CBI Distributing Corp., which holds the Claire's intellectual property, contributed certain IP to CLSIB in exchange for a six-year royalty licensing agreement. And that licensing agreement gave Claire's stores the exclusive right through CBI to use that transferred intellectual property. As part of this set of transactions, Claire's also contributed $11.5 million of cash to the capital of Claire's stores. Claire's stores agreed to pay CLSIP annual royalties of $12 million for six years, and that's in exchange for the exclusive right to use that transferred intellectual property. The two CLSIP entities are obligors on the $105 million CLSIP term loan, but are not obligors on any of the debtors' funded debt. So what's important to note here is that the CLSIP term loan is structurally senior to the debtor's obligations with respect to the CLSIP collateral, which, again, includes uh, CLSIP's rights to that valuable transferred intellectual property. So essentially, what we've arrived at is the fact that there are valuable assets or collateral being held at each of these Gibraltar and CLSIP boxes. And the Gibraltar and CLSIP debt obligations are structurally senior to the debtor's obligations, with respect to those valuable assets. Uh, it may be interesting to note that according to the company's first day filings, the ad hoc first lien group, which is signed onto the RSA, as Yash said, owned 26, about 26% of the Gibraltar 2019 unsecured term loan, 60% of the 2021 unsecured term loan at Gibraltar, and 60% of the CLSIP secured term loan. And Apollo, which is Claire's equity sponsor, controlled or owned approximately 28% of the Gibraltar 2021 term loan and approximately 28% of the CLSIP term loan. So, Mark, getting back to your original question, um, under the terms of the RSA, the debtors were authorized to solicit, develop, and negotiate something called a payout event proposal, which provides for a payout event. And that would require the payment in full, in cash, uh, including any accrued but unpaid interest of all first lien debt claims, the CLSIP term loan claims, and the Gibraltar obligations. 
But on Wednesday, June 13, Judge Walrath essentially threw that requirement out of the window and said that the debtor should consider bids in forms that don't require a payout event. So this means that the debtors may not necessarily be constrained to the bids that provide for the payment in full in cash of the first lien CLSIP and Gibraltar debt, which were reported to add up to about $1.9 billion in the aggregate. The judge actually commented that she's often been surprised by the creativity that she's seen in the courtroom. And so I think it's a real possibility that we could see some other form of deal emerge here. You know, you mentioned creativity. Um, Yash, I wanted to go back to um, you know, the the plan itself, uh, you know, here. And uh, I've seen a number of different bankruptcies and um, a number of different securities come, uh, you know, uh, that along the way, and it always, it, it never ceases to amaze me the creativity, um, you know, to use uh, Judge Walras' um, words um, in in some of these securities that these companies develop. Uh, in particular, here, um, you know, I was hoping you could discuss the the, the term loan and the preferred equity. Um, I think uh, seem to be very creative pieces of of paper. Um, so if you could just. Um, discuss, um, you know, discuss those and, and in particular, um, you know, focus on sort of different uh, events post-emergence and, um, and, and, and how that affects um, claims and, and, and how it affects uh, equity splits over time. Sure thing. So uh, I definitely would also describe these securities as creative, but uh, let's start with the term loan. So pursuant to the RSA, the debtors are contemplating, um, as we briefly discussed, that $250 million term loan that would have a 20-year maturity and bear interest at LIBOR plus seven and a quarter percent with a 1.5% floor, payable quarterly in cash, and it would have no amortization with the full principal amount due at maturity. And uh, probably the most interesting part of this security is that it would include a make-whole redemption provision, which would be payable upon, quote, a change of control, merger, sale of all or substantially all assets, acceleration, default, bankruptcy, insolvency, redemption, or prepayment, whether mandatory or at the reorganized company's option. So uh, clearly there's a lot of scenarios that could essentially trigger this make whole. And essentially if the term loan was refinanced or if the company was sold on day one after emergence, the reorganized entity would owe a make whole for the present value of all future interest payments through the whole 20 year maturity. And we calculated this just as an example, uh, if it was triggered on day one, it would come out to roughly, uh, based on our estimates, to 320 million, which represents about 130% premium on day one. And now onto the preferred equity. This, this security is quite interesting and uh, there's a bunch of terms, so it's a bit of a doozy. So uh, bear with me. And so as I mentioned uh, earlier, the preferred equity raise will be between an amount of 200 and 250 million, which will come in at a 37.5% discount, meaning that the actual amount of the preferred equity would be between 320 million and 400 million um, at the liquidation preference. And on top of that, there are actually two fees that are associated with this security both payable in additional preferred shares. There's a $17.5 million backstop put premium that's only available to the backstop parties and a $8.75 million commitment premium, which is on, uh, available to all parties who executed the RSA by April 2nd. So including these fees, the all-in 
initial liquidation preference of the preferred equity will be between roughly 346 million and 426 million. And uh, notably, this preferred equity would be convertible at the holder's option at any time. And so based on the debtor's uh, stated enterprise value of 1.4 billion, and assuming there's $150 million of net debt at emergence, we would have $1.25 billion of equity value. So this implies that the preferred equity could represent anywhere between 27% of the total equity value at emergence if uh, 200 million is raised and 34% if 250 million is raised uh, based on its initial liquidation preference. And um, one of the key features as it stands today of this security has to do with the dividends. So this preferred will have a 14% annual dividend on its uh, liquidation preference payable in cash or at the option of the holder accrued quarterly. And this is really important because the holder has the option to choose to receive their dividend in cash or in kind. And so if people choose to accrue their dividends to the liquidation preference, the equity ownership structure could change uh, over time and be different in uh, a few years relative to its day one uh, ownership structure. So essentially, as more and more dividends accrue on the preferred uh, over time, all else held equal, it will be, represent a greater share of the reorganized entity's overall equity eating into the common equity holder's share. And <clears throat> just to put some numbers around this, let's say that uh, on the low end, $200 million of the preferred equity is raised uh, based on the debtor's indications at the hearing. This would imply an all-in liquidation preference, including fees of $346 million, or roughly 27.7% of the uh, emergence equity value. And if we assume that all the dividends are elected to be accrued and that overall equity value is held constant, we estimate that the initial 27% could grow to represent 50% by year 7 and roughly two-thirds by year 12. And on the high end, if the max 250 million is raised, that implies a all-in liquidation preference of roughly 426 million, or 34% of the initial equity value, which we estimate could grow to 50% by year five and two-thirds by year 10. And just to be clear, all those percentages I just said were before incorporating a management incentive plan, so they definitely could be subject to some additional dilution. And this concept of a growing preferred equity security is really important here because remember, 50% of the new money investment, which includes this preferred equity, is reserved for the backstop parties. Then they also get to participate in the broader rights offering as well. So they could end up owning something like 85% of the preferred equity. So because the security is growing over time, the backstop parties would benefit because they would end up owning the vast majority of it and their ownership would increase over time, uh, again, prior to any dilution from a MIP, which would end up diluting uh, some of the other owners. And last but not least, on top of all this, the preferred equity has a redemption premium that's uh, kind of similar to the term loans make whole premium. It would require, uh, upon a change of control or early, early redemption among some of the other things I said earlier, that the present value of all future dividends through the 20th anniversary be paid out. And we estimate that this could be double the initial liquidation preference. And if triggered day one, 
it would, could range anywhere between 700 million to 850 million, depending on how much of the preferred is raised. Great. So, Teresa, now that we know the plan, um, as, as uh, we said earlier, the UCC has objected to the disclosure statement. Uh, the oak, oak tree has objected to, or, or did object to, the marketing process. Um, so, to the extent that another party here wants to to, to get involved, um, what are the difficulties that opposing parties face in breaking up a plan that's already in place? So, Mark, uh, we wrote about this a little bit in our two-part plan story, which is on the Reorg website for subscribers. And what's interesting to know here is that Oaktree hasn't filed um, some of the more traditional types of motions that we've seen in adversarial uh, situations. So, for example, they haven't filed a motion to terminate exclusivity, um, and they haven't filed a motion to appoint an examiner. Um, in fact, at the hearing on Oaktree's motion to modify the marketing process, which was June 13th, counsel for the First Lane Ad Hoc Group actually argued that Oaktree had filed this unique and unprecedented motion to modify the marketing process because Oaktree is constrained by an intercreditor agreement from seeking other types of reliefs. Um, so according to the debtor's disclosure statement, under the intercreditor agreement, second lien note holders cannot, quote, take or receive any common collateral or other collateral, end quote, unless and until first lien claims are paid in full in cash. And secondly, note holders also waive any marshalling, appraisal, valuation, or similar rights. And firstly, lenders have the exclusive right to enforce rights and exercise remedies with respect to collateral that secures both non-ABL firstly debt and secondly notes. So because of this intercreditor agreement, Oaktree is likely limited in the types of relief that it can ask the court to grant. And this could be one reason why we've seen Oaktree focus more on arguing that there are conflicts of interest on the debtors board, uh, particularly with respect to Apollo, which is, as I mentioned before, the debtors equity sponsor. In general, allegations of conflicts of interest are one way that we've seen creditors try to break up existing plans. And it's particularly common when we see Chapter 11 debtors that were the subject of LBOs by private equity firms. Of course, uh, for our listeners who are familiar with the Chapter 11 landscape, Oaktree and Apollo were both players in the Caesars Chapter 11 case as well. And in that case, there was also a significant issue of conflicts between the debtors and their PE sponsors, Apollo and TPG. Here in Claire's, Judge Walrath has already commented that she is concerned that the debtors may be, quote, too close to Apollo, uh, although she declined to appoint an independent uh, counsel to run the sale process for the debtors. So it remains to be seen how that particular issue of conflicts is going to be played out. Another complicating factor here is that the Claire's UCC has sided with Oaktree on some of the important issues in this case, including valuation. Uh, as we discussed earlier, the UCC agrees with Oaktree that the $1.4 billion TEV put forth by the debtors is artificially low and that the debtors' exit financing is, quote, structured to deliver outsized returns. The UCC has already threatened a valuation fight if the debtors decide to continue with their current plan, which likely would be an extremely expensive and time-consuming litigation. And, and the ownership structure, too, I think is pretty interesting. Um, you, you and Yash both said, um, you talked about how the first lien lenders also own a lot of the unsecured um, the unsecureds here. So how does that holder base and concentration in each class, how does that affect uh, Oak Tree's chances, too? So as I, as I just mentioned, the UCC is against the current plan on file, and they've said that if the debtors choose to proceed with solicitation, Class A would reject the plan. Now, at the moment, Class A consists of unsecured claims against any other debtors besides Claire's Inc., 
and it includes first lien debt deficiency claims, secondly notes claims, and unsecured notes claims. So under the current plan, those claims are all voting together, although it's unclear uh, at this point what amounts those claims will ultimately be allowed at. One thing that we may have to consider is how big the respective amounts of claims are and which pool of claims likely would dominate the class voting results. Yeah, and, and then in terms of going back to the first lien, um, you know, there's, there's considerable amount of money. So um, in what Ju- Judge Walrath, what she just ruled, um, you know, how does that change uh potential competing plans. Well, since the judge threw out the $1.9 billion cash paydown requirement and requested that the marketing process be extended, the actual deadlines for the marketing process, uh, it's fair to say that the ultimate plan could look somewhat different from what's on the table. And the DS hearing originally was scheduled for June 20th, but that's also been adjourned. Great. So, so Yash, now, um, you know, one thing that the debtors have have given us um, is our, our projections here, which I think helps us formulate what a an alternate plan might look like, uh, or what um, sort of what what, what ability um, any sort of competing plan has, um, you know, here. So, can you just talk about some of those those factors um, uh, in, in terms of? What, um, what what was provided and uh, what what that allows? Sure. So I definitely would say it's a bit too early to speculate on specific terms of what an alternative plan could look like. But as you mentioned, I, I think we do have an idea of some of the levers that Oak Tree or any other potential plan sponsor could, could pull in constructing an alternate plan offer. And in terms of Oak Tree specifically, they've been quite vocal since the first day hearing about a plan proposal that would ascribe a $2 billion valuation to the business. And with respect to that, I think a key point to consider with any plan or or bid that gets put forth is to what parts of the business value is allocated to. And how we think about it is that there are essentially three uh, large buckets, North America, Europe, and uh, the IP. And as we kind of talked about earlier, the North American subsidiaries are the ones that are currently in bankruptcy, while the European and IP subs are non-debtors. So the value ascribed to each business segment and the IP will affect creditors differently. For example, the North America subs, um, which which are the debtors, any extra value ascribed to that segment will uh, likely accrue for the most part to the benefit of first lien creditors until they are paid in full given their security interests. And the current plan, as Teresa mentioned, lumps first lien deficiency claims, second lien claims, and unsecured claims all into the unsecured claims pool. So if this is the case, an increase in North America subsidiaries value would also benefit junior creditors on account of a reduction um, in the first lien deficiency claims, which are, you know, are a large dilutive factor of the unsecured claims pool. Now, if we see an increase in European equity value, that would benefit both first lien creditors and junior creditors, uh, given that 65% of that foreign equity is uh, pledged for the benefit of secured creditors, while the remaining 35% is unencumbered and available for the benefit of all creditors. So um, moving on to the IP, any residual equity value there is likely unencumbered because those subs are, again, non-debtors and they don't have any obligations 
to the debt that's housed at the debtor entities. And so that value also would likely benefit uh, all creditors. So if, if you're Oak Tree or another junior creditor, you likely want to argue that for higher valuations of the European operations and the intellectual property. And this presents an interesting wrinkle because the debtors have been arguing that Europe operations are performing poorly below plan, which we briefly touched on. But um, so they first said in an objection to Oak Tree's marketing motion uh, that, uh, quote, business performance in Chapter 11 has been below their business plan and trending downwards, end quote. Then they announced results for the first quarter of fiscal 2018, which uh, showed that same store sales were down 0.4% on a consolidated basis with North America up 5.4% and Europe down a whopping 9.9%. And it's in its earnings release, Claire's also said for the second quarter to date, consolidated same store sales have increased approximately 1% with North America outperforming Europe. And uh, David Hilty of Houlihan, who's advising Oak Trees as uh, second lien creditors, said at that hearing on the marketing motion that according to new data received regarding same store sales, the trend is improving, including Europe. And the debtors essentially were on the other side of that, arguing that the uncertainty and the underperformance of the European entities is uh, pretty much why they don't want to linger around in bankruptcy. Uh, so they can, uh, among other things, retire those 2019 Gibraltar maturities, maybe preserve some liquidity at uh, the European entities and mitigate the uncertainty uh, as to avoid a, a vendor liquidity debt spiral akin to what happened in toys at the end of last year. So with all that in mind, clearly the debtors and the junior creditors are arguing for valuations at um, opposite ends of the spectrum, if you will. But as we just discussed, the sources of those values will be important. And I expect we'll see a lot of discussion, uh, to put it lightly, around the valuation of the different buckets and Europe in particular. And uh, other than valuation, um, at least a higher valuation, what other points of argument can they make? So um, I think another lever that uh, a new plan sponsor could pull potentially is adding more leverage to the reorganized entity. Oak Tree actually disclosed prior to the hearing um, an alternative financing proposal for Claire's exit facilities from a third party lender with terms that Oak Tree described as uh, far more favorable for the company than the exit facilities com contemplated in the RSA. And the proposal Oak Tree outlined contemplated a similar, uh, similarly sized $75 million ABL facility, but with the ability for it to be upsized by an additional $25 million and a $500 million term loan compared with the $250 million term loan and uh, preferred equity structure contemplated in the current plan. And according to Oak Tree, the alternate financing proposal would result in $43 million of year one debt service costs, which is roughly half of the $85 million um, they ascribe to the one contemplated in the RSA. So uh, currently, uh, the contemplated exit financing package, if you look at only uh, pure, purely debt, the reorganized entity would have roughly uh, one, one turn of leverage which, uh, you know, of course, is on the lower side. But if you include the preferred equity, that would be roughly two times. And with this backdrop, it kind of begs the question, how much debt can be put on this reorganized entity? 
So kind of addressing that in one of the pieces we ran recently, we looked at um, illustrative debt capacity based on two metrics, unlevered free cash flow ability with a 25% cushion and interest coverage ratio pegged at two times. And we've flexed these across a wide range of metrics, but we centered the midpoints around the projections that management provided us uh, for unlevered free cash flow and adjusted EBITDA after uh, backing out the impact of Toys R Us concessions businesses that, of course, will not be continuing for Claire's next year. And so uh, this means roughly $155 million of unlevered free cash flow and $235 million of adjusted EBITDA at the midpoint. Um, and these midpoint values imply that reorganized Claire's could sustain nearly $1 billion of debt at a weighted average interest rate of 12%, which would imply around four times leverage. And even in our lowest scenario, which represents roughly uh, 20% lower free cash flow and 25% lower adjusted EBITDA than the midpoint, we estimate that Claire's could support somewhere between 700 and $800 million of debt post-emergence. And to me, this says that you could capitalize the reorganized entity with uh, a bit more debt than the that's currently being contemplated, which would uh, allow a theoretical alternative proposal um, that could provide more take back debt to first lien creditors, which would then you know free up equity to be just distributed to uh, junior creditors. So with all that in mind, there's definitely a lot more room for creative proposals, as uh, Judge Walrath put it, given her order to widen the range of bids that the debtors could consider. And so I think we'll definitely see some more action in this case. So a good one to stay tuned into. Great, thank you. Um, uh, thank you both, uh, Teresa, Yash. Uh, this has been um, really helpful. Um, I hope everybody enjoyed it. And Karen, back to you. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page. Or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in Reorg.